0: you're listening to the fearless futures podcast where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion working in daring companies across sectors around the world each week we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss so stick around hello hello everyone i am super super excited for today's conversation when we're thinking about all things power and what does it look like to disrupt and to to interrupt power. I mean, Abella Okobi was the person that we had to go to, okay? So if you wonder why I'm excited, that is why. Sable Lomax, pronouns she and her, chief relationships officer at Fearless Futures. And this is season two of our podcast. I think this is episode seven. I should be keeping up, but obviously... I'm guessing in this moment, but we have a guest. I mean, just look at her, just take, for those who are watching the video replay, just look at her, about she's ready to go. Look at, look at the vibrancy in, in the necklace, look at the picture in the background. It, so you can understand where my excitement is coming from. How are you today? It is still, we're only four hours apart right now because of the time change. So h- how are you feeling? How's your morning going today?
1: I'm feeling amazing. I just got back from a trip to Cartagena in Colombia, which if you know anything about Cartagena is is a center of black culture. And I am on the eve of a trip to Nigeria, my motherland, my homeland. And so I am feeling amazing. I'm feeling held.
0: Okay, so I'm going to just let folks know who you are and then we are going to jump right in. Now, normally, When you get bios, you try to find things to take out just to shorten them because, you know, time is of the essence. But then I was reading yours and I said, there's no way that this could be shortened because each line felt crucial to me, considering the perspective and lens you're going to bring to the conversation. So I want the folks to understand just the the woman is qualified, y'all. Okay, I I just don't know how else. okay Okay. bright bright (laughs) brilliant and qualified so here we go abella okoe is value is a values-led transformational leader who builds mission-driven teams passionate about shifting the arc of the moral universe towards justice she began her career as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at Davis polk and wardell in new york london and paris and left corporate, work, corporate law to work in civil society first as a health policy advocate at Consumers Union, and then at Catalyst as an advisory services director, focusing on creating equity strategies for corporations and professional services firms in Silicon Valley and across New York. She left the nonprofit world for Nike's leadership development team and their EMEA headquarters, where she worked in brand strategy across Africa and Nike's women's business. Abella subsequently spent 14 years in tech policy, government relations, human rights. As Yahoo's legal director and global head of human rights, she built the very first human rights team in tech. At Facebook, Abella built and led the Africa and then Africa, Middle East and Turkey policy teams from one person to over 45. During the most politically complex period in the company's history, Abella's commitment to nurturing and advocating for her team and the community were reflected in her appointments, including as the executive sponsor of Facebook's Black Women at ERG, executive advisor to Facebook's Black Leadership Advisory Council policy pillar, because, amen, rest is revolutionary, she is thrilled to be on a sabbatical for 2022, chasing joy and making good trouble. You needed this sabbatical. I did, girl. <laughs> how? I did. How has it been going? Because when I read this, I said she needed this sabbatical. I did,
1: but you know what? So many of us do. I mean, the more mm. I talk to people, I mean, a, it's been a different. So being a woman, being a Black woman in business is always um, a blessing and just the burden that you carry. And then these past two years, I think for everyone, have been really difficult. So I feel really privileged and grateful to have the opportunity to just rest and take time off and focus on chasing joy.
0: I know you just came off a trip, you're on the E to the motherland. And I know sometimes in context, when people say the motherland, they're talking about the entirety of the African continent. but I appreciate the specificity of saying, I'm going to Nigeria. That's my portion of the motherland. That's mother, those mother. my people. Right, those, those are, are my, my people. people. <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking <laughs> about the whole continent, nothing wrong with the whole continent. I'm talking about my people within the continent. What else? Yeah. Just curious. Before we jump in, what else do you have planned for this year of Or are you just kind of letting the Spirit guide you for how the year rolls out? It's interesting. So one of the so I'm trying to invite
1: serendipity into my life, but I like many of us, I'm kind of a con. I, I, control you know and so one of the things that i've been really interested in that i've had the opportunity to plunge into is this intersection between art culture and liberation i'm uh very excited about the venice biennale which is like the world olympics for art and i'm excited about it because this year the U.K. has selected a Black woman artist to represent it. Scotland has, repre- has selected a Black woman art- artist. Um, so it's Sonia Boyce in the U.K. It's Alberta Whittle in Scotland. And the U.S. has Simone Lee, who is incredible dynamic. There's just a New Yorker ar- article that came out about her, her. So And then France has an Algerian I woman. I yeah. Switzerland has a woman from Morocco. And Canada has a Black man. And so it just feels very much like like black year at the Venice. And so I'm a patron of the US and I'm sort of the UK and the Scotland pavilions and I'm hosting a party. uh, Well, uh, a black party. Um, uh, in Venice, along with Ashley Adjay, who is a homegirl from the Bay Area and also married to David Adjay, who, if you've been to the National Museum for African American History, he is the architect behind that and many other beautiful spaces. And so we are bringing Black people together to just celebrate. And so I'm doing a ton of stuff at the intersection of art and culture throughout the year that I'm really excited about.
0: Oh, the jealousy. I might have to pray on this. Okay. We've asked this question of every guest. So going to start here with you, a past moment, and I'm sure you have many and can go as, you know, as as far back as childhood, far back, I'm a bit dramatic, as early as childhood. What was, or what, in your opinion, has been a crucial mic drop learning moment in terms of all things equity? So an equity-based mic drop learning moment that really just has just, it resonates with you and it, and it comes back to you in, in different moments throughout time.
1: So I, I've had many, so I, this is, I don't know that this is the most significant, but I'm just saying, because it's the most recent. So I just came back from Cartagena, which I said, um, so Cartagena was, um, is actually was, or sorry, there's an, uh, a town outside of Cartagena called Palenque. Um, Palenque is the very first, the uh, oldest African free um, settlement in the in Latin America, actually in in North America. And it was founded by an, a, a, an enslaved person who escaped and basically and fought off um, uh, the Spanish to a draw and created this town of, of free people. There was this treat. They, they, were, they were such fierce fighters that the Spaniards were forced to do a treaty to just say, okay, you guys can keep your patch of freedom. Of course, colonizers being colonizers, they broke the, at the treaty and they ended up killing him, but the town remained a free town. And for me, it was pivotal because, um, what, for a couple of things, one understanding the extent to which um, the white supremacy is such a global uh, concept. You know, so flying into Colombia and there's a, there's a, there's what you think Colombia is like, and I've been to Cali before for business, but Cartagena, the Palenque, these are black places. I mean, these are like you're walking around and it felt like you're in Oakland. And so, a couple of things. So one, recognizing the extent to which white supremacy has shaped so many parts of the world, so many parts of the world. And also there's a conversation about how you address white supremacy, which is very much about how you accommodate yourself to it. And so I've been very mm-hmm. interested in stories about people who actually use struggle and were successful in struggle. So that for me, mm-hmm. so seeing that was was huge. And then the final thing is um, an artist I follow Um, named Kaliban, who does incredible work, and he posted something that said he was talking about um, Thomas Sankara and a bunch of these um, heroes from Black liberation movements, and he said, most of my heroes are failures. And that, for me, I read Mm -hmm. that a month ago, and it was because that is true of me. So if I think of all the people that I revere, there are people who either died in struggle um, or led people to the mountaintop, but they didn't get there themselves. Um, And so there's... They themselves didn't get there, and so there's something in there for me that is about how do you remain in struggle, knowing that you will not ever see the fruits of your labor. How do you remain motivated? How do you find joy? And so the final thing I'll say is because the recognition of that, yes, white supremacy is can feel overpowering. Yes, it can feel like you won't make it to the mountaintop, and so that for me is a call to joy in the sense that I can, how can I hold space for struggle? How can I hold space for being relentless and impatient about progress Mm -hmm. and still create joy? So I I think those holistically are are some of the things that, yeah, have been mic drop moments for me.
0: I have all these questions planned, but I don't even know what's gonna happen in terms of questions because even you just now and me hearing you saying, how can I remain impatient I just feel like that if this were a paper, this would need to be bold, underlined, you know, underscored a few times because how many times have folks asked, you know, Black people, Indigenous people, you know, whoever the marginalized group, community in question, to be patient, and it's just something there. It's like "Mm," the wanting to remain impatient while trying to you know get to liberation however someone might define that
1: yeah i mean who does patience serve listen so yeah when when we are when we say oh it's fine and when we allow other people to set this timeline of our own liberation who does that serve and i think that there are is a whole spectrum of of struggle right and i think people come in in different places and there are people for whom their gift is patience there are people for, and I think that that's amazing I don't know if you went to I have abandoned religion in my old age but when I was little of course I went to Sunday school and there's a song was you know, all, God's gotta, <laughs> yeah, all God's creatures gotta yeah all God's creatures got a place in the choir some sing low some sing higher and so my my key is impatience and so I'm that person who's saying we can do better we have to do better we have to do better I'll let other people mm-hmm. you know coddle and make people feel comfortable but I don't think that's not my that's you not my ministry, ministry. It's not my ministry. It's
0: not my ministry. I mean, if you can tell why I'm excited for the conversation, hopefully you have proof now. It's only been a few minutes and you've already given us so much. May 2020, Black Lives Matter uprising due to the deaths of George Floyd, which I think is also interesting to highlight. Breonna Taylor was murdered in March, but the, the, the massive uprising came due to George Floyd's death. And the way in which the world responded on on a truly global scale, and then not just, you know, the citizens of the respective countries, the way companies responded on a global scale, many of them being, and I'm just going to use words that were shared in shock of that such a tragedy could occur. And for many of us who are impatient or maybe patient, you know, depending on where you lie on a patient um, spectrum ministry line, we're, we're interested in us being polite with the use of the word shock, considering how racism has permeated and infiltrated every fabric of society in the U.S., in the U.K. and, and beyond because it's a global system, you know. For you, when you were watching, you know as things were unfolding, what was your perspective on how companies were were responding?
1: It's so interesting because I, I I felt
0: so conflicted in that moment.
1: And so, number one, of course, my heart went out to George Floyd's family, and there was this just sense of exhaustion. But I had an overwhelming, those who know me will not be surprised, but I had an overwhelming emotion of just rage. Yeah. You're shocked? Yeah. How are you shocked? Like, I don't, I don't, how are you shocked? I mean, so for me personally also, so um, those of you who know me, my brother was murdered by police in 2018. He was murdered for walking down the sidewalk wearing a backpack and there was no, you know, world upright, you know, like the world didn't stop because my brother was murdered. And my friend who was also a coworker, a colleague of mine at Facebook, um, Sharon Cooper, her sister, Sandra Bland was murdered. And so that-, that Her sister, Sandra, the, okay. Yeah. And so, and so there are, How it, many- there are thousands of, I mean, one of the jokes I made after the time is there actually needs to be like an app. You know, so your relative has been murdered by police because it's so common. Yeah. And so for me, the fact that co- that companies were discovering racism for the first time, mm-hmm. and worse, were not locating themselves within it. Yeah. Right. So then you started having companies being shocked about police brutality. Never mind that we've been telling you guys this this for for centuries. Never mind we, But then they weren't locating themselves within the problem. They're saying, okay, we are. We think it's sad that somewhere far away, police. Are doing this? They weren't looking at their executive leadership teams and saying, "Wait a minute, y'all are running a plantation. If y'all have at senior levels only white people, yeah. only, and then you have people of color, indigenous people, people at the bottom, yeah. but you're shocked." Like I just so you know, short of a long as I I, fa- I found it completely disingenuous, mm-hmm. um, and I found that a lot of the promises that companies made in the aftermath of it were things that they just made to kind of get them, you know, they were performative because they're also talking about areas in which they didn't have power when companies have power. Mm-hmm. They have power to make a difference when it comes to systemic racism and they are consistently choosing not to use it.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you for those who made pledges or put out, you know, their diversity statement, their commitment to XYZ, I know on different websites because you can put like a banner at the top You know, it's like, we are committed to like Black Lives Matter. You know, it was different little signals of what I would argue to be performative allyship that happened. Have you seen it in your, you know, just observations and and reading things and having conversations with folks? Have you seen, you don't have to name them if you have, but have you seen a company that has like, did all those, but you know, it's now 2022, we're almost two years after, and it has actually been doing the work to to show what it looks like to be committed to dismantling and disrupting racism.
1: I, so I think it's a difficult question to ask me because it's not as if I've seen across companies, yeah. right? I, so I don't have that perspective. I can say that the companies I have been intimately connected through, either through friends or whatever, that has not been the case. So it has not been the case. The companies made commitments and have followed through. And I think part of it, so I was on, um, I had a panel conversation and John Amici, I know people call him Amichi, but his last name is Amici, he's Evo. Um who was, um, he's actually born in, the, in, he's born in the UK, but w- went to the US and played basketball and was the first NBA athlete to come out as gay. A- and he's incredible. And so now he talks about adversity and he said something yesterday or the day before that stuck with me. And it is um, weaponized ignorance Woo! or weaponized incompetence. Yes, and I was like that is So there is this thing like, well, gosh, yes, we rec- of course we recognize that this is an issue, but you know these types of things take time. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, can you help us? Yeah. Tell us how do we fix it? Look at what that's progress nonsense. we've
0: made so far.
1: Yeah, like look, like look, you guys like it, we used to be at one percent, and mm-hmm. now we're at one point two. Like that's amazing, guys we have almost doubled so and and then and then coming to you as a person of color and saying hey you know we really care about this like what can you do to help us y'all know i mean it, it, it's not difficult you guys aren't hiring and you're not promoting and that's just a basic that's not even talking about the company decisions that are made that have an impact on communities that's a long-winded way of saying i actually don't know any companies mm-hmm. that in my view have been relentless about att- addressing this as an issue, you know, but, but it's not like I'm looking at m- at multiple companies. But I think general thing, if you talk to people who work at these companies is that there's sort of a sense of like, this is a hard problem, you know, like it'll take hundreds of years to solve it. So, you know, if you guys could just be patient in the interim, uh, you know,
0: There goes that word again, patient. So, Nigerian American woman you've worked in London obviously you are you've traveled about whether it's for work or for personal reasons so I imagine that you have this just inherently based on your upbringing where you were born where your people are from where you've lived for years that you have this global perspective on like what's required to do justice work as you've traveled and you have the different lenses you know the different lenses and the perspectives and such you know how, what do you do to ground yourself in like the solidarity of the struggle? And and just to give you some context, i got, and I'll just use racism because that's where, you know, what the system we've been talking about this far, sometimes, and sometimes might be putting it lightly, there can be this like visceral disconnect for, you know, We need to focus on racism in the U.S. We can't go across the pond, even if it's in a virtual manner, and support those who are struggling with racism in the U.K. It's like we can't focus on the U.S. and the U.K. We need to go to Brazil, y'all. We can't focus in Brazil. We need to go here and not realizing that we are struggling within the diaspora and sis, the, the roots of the, the mechanics of the system are the same the way it manifests might show up differently but we we could actually stand in solidarity with each other and how powerful that could be like what have you done to ground yourself in recognizing wait a minute y'all US UK whatever the country might be Dominican Republic Cuba etc can we put our fist up and stand strong together like what have you done to to ground yourself in in being rooted to, I'm trying to dismantle the system. I'm not trying to dismantle the system for this one city or this one country.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things is recognizing that all the struggles are the same. They're all connected. And I think, uh, and that they're, who does it serve to separate the struggles? Like who does it serve? Mm -hmm. It doesn't serve us. And so understanding that. and, And then I think often we focus on, you know, racism or homophobia or, misogyny without focusing on the root cause. And I think if you focus on the root cause, if you focus on dismantling the root cause, which is white supremacy, white connect. patriarchal supremacy, white uh, 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 rampant capitalism, if you focus on that, yeah. if you focus on that, then you realize that all the struggles are connected. And it was really a gift. So when I was at Facebook, I started as a director for Africa and then I uh, was promoted to Africa, Middle East and Turkey. And the joy of being able to help people see the extent to which those co- they're connected. The struggle in Palestine is intimately connected to Black liberation struggles. And in fact, I was privileged to have on my team a woman whose father had written sort of a seminal book on the connections between Black liberation struggles in the 60s and 70s and the Palestinian liberation struggle. And I actually brought him to my team to talk about his book. And I think the more people are educated about what the system of power is, the more you cannot help but understand that they're all connected. Yeah. and they're all connected. And the other thing is, I think, centering ourselves on the intersections that are most vulnerable. So if you solve for, if you solve for a trans person who's disabled, who's black, if you solve for that, then it, it so trickle down doesn't work. Trickle down doesn't work, but trickle up does. Do you know what I mean? So if you're solving for, it, for people who are the most severely impacted by systems of power, then you're solving for everyone, including white people, except for white people who are mediocre and are in their jobs because they're mediocre. Those people should be concerned. Anyone who is upheld by a systems of power, yeah, you're going to be concerned because equity actually does impact you if you're in a position, if you are, if you are in your position because of a lack of equity. But yeah, I think the, the biggest thing was recognizing what the foe is. And then recognizing if you under if you keep your eye on what the foe is, then you're, it's clear that we're all working together and that we are all connected.
0: I'm gonna have to find a way to clone you. I don't believe in cloning human beings, but I do. We could. There's so many of us. I know. There's so many. I know, but us. I feel like we should just do a little overpopulation. <laughs> Let me focus. And you mentioned this a little a little bit earlier hiring us more, promoting us more. And oftentimes when that's conversations taking place, we're talking about recruitment, you know, the 1% and now we're at 1.2. Let's everyone celebrate. Let's bring in a famous black speaker to talk to everyone about, you know, whatever the topic may be. We've done fantastic y'all. And then, you know, that be that we might not even grow from 1.2%. And there's so much focus on the pipeline problem. I mean, I, if I got 10 cents since I've been at fearless futures in particular about the pipeline problem, I'm not saying my student loans would be gone, but I'm saying we'd be almost at, you know, completion in terms of paying them off. (laughs) But we know that that's nonsense. Like we know it's not true. And it's often used as an excuse to justify taking measurable action that you have to be accountable for. And two, and you've built teams, you went from one, to 45 so we know it's possible you've done it you know it's possible can you tell the people how you've done this magical thing because they do seem to yes. believe it's magic and i want them to know yes. it's not magic all humans have the possibility to do this <laughs>
1: so i so i think i would go back to john Ameti's weaponized incompetence so so it is deciding i actually prefer to keep my workplace and to keep power looking the way it is. And so I will then say, oh, it's just so hard to find. And so I I would just, I remind people of the inherent racism within that. So think about what you're saying. What you are saying is that Black people, Latino people, across all of these enormous communities, you cannot find someone, it's nonsense, you can't find one person. One of my favorite stories about this is I have a friend named Darren Isom who is now, I can't remember where he is, at Bridgeman. But at one point he focused, he um, was a funder on arts programs. And one of the things he would do, cause he was a funder is whenever he would meet with the program, he would meet with the board and say, I don't see your, your community. The communities you're serving are people of color. Why is your board? Why don't you have anyone on your board who's a person of color? And they would say, oh, it's just so different, difficult <laughs> pipeline. And he told me this, and this story is shared to me. He said, one time someone said that, and he said, I've seen all your resumes. You know, because he's a funder, so I'm a funder. I've seen your resumes. I know what schools you've been to. This is a mediocre bunch. So that you would Ooh. say you can't find someone to rise to your level of mediocrity. And I thought that was amazing, because what we usually do is then we throw people who have two, like, look at Kataji, sis Kataji. She has everything. mean, I mean. Is there a box that she doesn't, doesn't tick. tick? So we throw people with all of these to, to sit on a bench with Amy Coney, Coney Barrett and beer drinking Kavanaugh. Like the, so, so I love that statement because it, it helped ground people. Wait a minute. Y- y'all are, this is not a men's a bunch. This is not like, this isn't King Arthur circle. This is, y'all are average. And you're telling me you can't find an average background. So anyway, in my case, what I did is I was relentless. So they're so when, so imagine someone telling me I'm hiring for Africa across the entire country of Africa and they're like, oh, it's it's impossible to find an African person who can do policy. Nonsense, the fact that you've said that, think about how, think about when you said that aloud and you heard yourself, what did it sound like? And so I was relentless. So I recruited my own people. I sat down with some of the recruiting people and said, this is how you recruit across the country. Because a lot of things is their own ignorance. Yeah. And because they're ignorant, they don't know which schools to, talk, to go to. They don't know what competencies. They're creating job specs that essentially are like, I want a white man. And then they're just arranging around and they're having criteria. So for example, imagine recruiting for Africans saying, well, but I want the person to have 10 years, 15 years of experience working in the U.S. as a lobby. Yeah, that's not like, white. Mm, that's coded white. for white. Why? Yeah, that's, that's coded for why. And why would that person, the skill set that you have for lobbying the U.S. Senate is totally different if you want someone who's lobbying in Nigeria or Ghana or Senegal. And where would you do that? Imagine hiring for a U.S. role and saying, oh, but you know what? I only want someone who has experience in Nigeria because it, it doesn't make any sense. Only racism mm-hmm. would make you flip that because there's a sense that once you've mastered Europe or the U.S., Everything else is just sort of a lesser version of it. When it's not, they're completely different. So I think helping people be really granular about what you actually need, helping people understand that know it's possible. Once you understand it's possible, helping people recruit in a different way. And the other thing is hire senior people. I can't tell you how many people, people they start hiring and they're like, "Let's have an internship program."
0: What yes, the hell? By the time program. that program, inter-
1: yes, always an internship. So by the time you hire that junior person, who you then chase out because you created an environment that's completely toxic. You need to hire senior people because senior people are force multipliers. Like my team alone, my entire team is African, Arab, queer, Muslim. Every single person fit into one of those categories. But that's because I'm a black woman and I was relentless and I was senior enough at a certain point and, you know, dedicated enough to make it happen. You have to hire more of us at that level and and, and examine, ask yourself why you feel more comfortable only hiring junior people. Nothing wrong with junior people, but why is it that that's, why do you feel more comfortable with people that you don't think are threatening to you? So yeah, I I think hiring senior people and letting them, and creating an environment where they can thrive, it will come because we will, we put our backs Mm -hmm. into it.
0: It was something, I mean, you said so much, but something in there in particular, it's like you you had, you were at that level, so you had the power to be able to do things differently. And going back to, you know, how folks will flip Racism when it when it's beneficial to them as to why they can't find people And you'll hear from folks who have the power and the influence within the organization Still make excuses as to why they can't find someone and you know you, You've used the word over and over again, so i'm sure i'm going to be singing it by saturday Being relentless it's like This issue is not about you not having the power to make certain choices is you not being dedicated to, to doing anything differently. And, and let's just focus on what, let's, let's probably locate that problem. This isn't about pipeline. This is about your unwillingness to do something different and to be committed to it because you can't try it for one week and go, we couldn't find someone. You can't talk to one different school and then go, Oh, well, you know, they're not there. It's like, we're here. We've been here. I,
1: I think the other thing is we need to start talking about it in terms of, and uh, this is separate from the term, of of incompetence. So if you're a recruiter and your job is to recruit for Africa or the Middle East and you cannot recruit Africans or people for the Middle East, you're actually bad at your job. And so I think, and and instead of it being seen as sort of an extra side thing, like, oh, God, if after you do the diversity recruiting, that means, no, that's a core part of your job. And if you can't do that, then you're, then you're not competent for your job. And I, and I would say the same with managers. There is so much conversation within companies about how, you, how do we give women, queer people, Black people, the tools to survive this toxic environment that we've created. Why is that? Like, why, why is you that the focus? Us. The focus should be on the people who have never managed people other than people who look just like themselves. And so they're floundering. And so because of them, you're losing people. That should be the focus because these are incompetent people. And so this sense that managing diverse teams is like a side thing. No, that's your actual job. And if you can't do it, you're actually incompetent. So I, I always laugh bitterly when people talk about lowering oh. the bar because I look at the bar, like, the bar is in hell. Like it, You have a senior person who's a terrible manager who cannot recruit who can only manage people who are who look exactly like him? Is that not a liability? And then and then you're comparing that person with someone who can build diverse teams, someone who can do their job and mentor other people. Are, have we not lowered the bar for yeah. for Chad? Where is the bar? Where, what it's is the really bar? So I think where is the bar? Yeah. So I so I think thinking about it in terms of competence. As opposed to it being like, oh, how can we help Black people and women survive this terrible culture we've created? No, no, no. How can we give managers accountability so that they're not creating these terrible cultures, which quite frankly are bad for everyone? They're not Mm -hmm. just bad um for people with minoritized and
0: you know as you say that i'm thinking through how many folks aren't making the connection between talent retention like i've heard folks you know and not necessarily in my work with fearless but you know just in other conversations like but we we recruit black people we've recruited indigenous people we've recruited queer black people we actually had two whole disabled folks on the team and they never stay and it's like and you 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 haven't made the connection as to why folks get the hell out of there within one to two years and you think the problem is is us so what you know whatever community might be in question like mm, stop putting women on programs to be bolder and talk louder maybe we need to you know re-envision right. what how we define success and what we you know the criteria for what leadership looks like and how many times we're getting spoken over in the meetings you know this not making the connection between recruitment and retention is always fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, there's an ML Quake uh, quote when he talks about some of his qualms about integration. And he says, I fear that I'm integrating my people into a burning house, because he's talking about the US, you're integrating into this place that fundamentally at its core is rotten. If your company fundamentally at its core is rotten, Stop inviting people into your rotten environment. You got to fix it. And, and I think one of the things that companies struggle with, which seems obvious, is if the people with minoritized identities at your company are desperate to leave, what do you <laughs> think we don't talk? I mean, y'all already think we know all the Black people. So with that knowledge of that like, I know every Black person, what do you think? Yeah, what do you think? We are saying at the drum circles, like, um, of like, you, like, what do you, like think,
0: and it goes what do you
1: think black person, right? Right. There is like one newsletter that we all share. So what do you think people are saying about your company? So if your company is a trashy place to be, bringing new people in won't solve it. You got to fix what you have. You have to, you have to solve your burning
0: house problem. And then recognize the commitment required. You can't have like one initiative for, you know, indigenous folks or, you know, Muslim women, and it lasts like two months. First of all, why is it initiative? But we won't go down that lane. And then it's done for two months. And I'm like, look, but the Muslim woman's still left. It's like. Right.
1: But this is where I think you have to turn the camera around. The problem is not the Muslim woman who just came and just tried to do her job. It was never her problem. She came, she was super excited. She's overqualified. She probably came in underleveled and underpaid. She it. was like, I'm gonna get, make this work. Yes, and then y'all, you know. So I, the, the, the camera needs to be turned around and we need to think about, are we, are, do the managers we have, is the, is the architecture we have within the company, a company uh, an architecture that's inherently toxic and if it is, you have to fix it. You like
0: you you have to fix you it. You have to fix it. And you have to resource it properly. But that's the conversation I think for another day. It's like you can't just hire the one person and go, all right, change things for the 7,000. Sparkle. You can't hire like the
1: one black person. So this is the one black person who's on your senior leadership team and be like, fix it. That's like not that, how that works. It, it, No, that's that's not how any of this works while you're still mm-hmm. clutching onto power. So, you refuse to integrate your leadership team, but then you task this one sorry person with the responsibility for integrating the rest of the company when you've shown the company that you don't think it's important because everyone who reports to you and everyone who reports to them is white. So, like, you've done that. You have done that. We tried. We See, brought, we we brought them in. Like, right. she was gay, Muslim, disabled, right. she was <laughs> trans. I have seen her use a wheelchair she fits yeah. all the boxes and she alone couldn't fix it. It's not a possible thing and y'all aren't serious. There if you think about all of if you look at companies, all the things that companies value and how they resource those things versus how they resource this. It's it's clear. It's not it's not something you're serious. Speaking
0: about, about power and people and all things that come with that. I feel like in the last maybe since 2016 I'm not gonna say last two years that would be and that would be just not accurate. I would say since 2016 there's been so much focus on free speech and what folks should be able to say and we cannot we cannot you know censor what folks say it's a right to be able to say what you know what you want to say what comes to mind not realizing that, you know, many of these statements have material consequences for folks, particularly marginalized folks, you know, whatever, you know, their identity or identities might be. And I feel like we see this a lot in the US and UK, but it's my, I can say this, you know, it's the amendment, you know, it's the law, et cetera, et cetera. And how this shows up in a workplace context when, you know, folks from, it could be like the LGBTQIA plus community, they're saying, you know, XYZ said this and person says, no, but it's, it's my freedom. And it's like, yeah, but what you said encourages violence or, you know, it dehumanizes something along those things. Where, how have you seen that play out? When you know companies are saying they're committed to equity and inclusion and diversity and belonging and all of the jargon words that exist, but then going, no, but you know, I can't tell someone they can't say X, Y, Z. Like, why do folks fall for free speech so, so easily?
1: So I will start by saying this is something that has chapped my hide for decades. For and this, I'll tell you why. So one, I'm a recovering lawyer. So like I was a lawyer, I'm not now. You should hide doing <laughs> lawyer stuff. But the First Amendment protects speech against governments. So it protects, so it gives you, as a citizen of the U.S., the First Amendment It's not not a global global amendment, people. It's only in the U.S., so please. But that protects you from government sanction. So what it's saying is that you as a citizen should have the right to challenge your government. So Black Lives Matter, all of that stuff. You should have a right to challenge your government. It has nothing to do with whether or not you want to tell your black co-worker, I think you're here for affirmative action. That's not free speech. That's not First Amendment doesn't have anything to do with that. Your black co-worker is not, does not represent the government. Your black co-worker has no power over you. So you saying that to them is not a a brave um, exercise of voice against the powerful. That's you being an asshole. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing in that moment. And so accept that. So don't pretend like you think it's something different. So anyway, so for, so my first issue is that when people talk about the first amendment, they don't know what they're talking about. And the first amendment has nothing to do with that conversation. Second of all, nothing protects you from the consequences of your actions. So if you, say a thing and that shows you to be a bad manager then you're a bad manager like you it, it doesn't if if you manage for example people with minoritized identities and you make it clear that you think those people are subhuman or are less valuable than other lives it is a completely valid inquiry to say wait are you qualified to manage these people given what your views are there is no protection against the consequences of your words. And so it, it has been since time immemorial, the ability to shun people for, for, for statements that, are, that go against norms. We have always done that. And the other thing that irritates me a lot is, if you have a minoritized identity, you spend a lot of time thinking very carefully about what you say. You spend a lot of time managing around fragility because your job is on the line, your, your likelihood is on the line. And so to have someone who what I mean, I, it is in my older age that I've become completely immune to white fragility. Like I just have no interest in it. I'm not going to pad around your feelings around a time. If something's true, I'm going to say it, but the vast majority of us don't behave like that. And so to have someone say, Oh gosh, I'm in a position where I have to be careful what I say. Well, Welcome um, to my life, ma'am. Like, like welcome and the, and the consequences for people with minoritized identities so are severe. severe up to and including like yeah. horrible consequences. And so this notion that someone now, that now someone will tell you, Oh gosh, you shouldn't have said that racist thing or that homophobic thing. And that's considered that's, that, that's considered something that, 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 that ruins someone's life. I always think mm-hmm. y'all couldn't live my life
0: mm-hmm. for half an hour what as you were talking my brain started connecting um and i've done it before but just in this moment like free speech to all of the focus around cancel culture where you know you have folks in priv who have privilege in in powerful positions going i can't i just can't say what i used to say and it's like how many of us have never been able to say what we have wanted to say for how long welcome to cancel culture also who is historically canceled and who gets to be forgiven with a pet exactly. on their back over and over again? Right. And let's think about the differences between what we want to say.
1: So those of us with minority nor- identities want to talk about our experiences. We're, we're looking, looking for equity. So, you, but you, but you are complaining because you can know, And it's funny because you actually most of them can because the consequences <laughs> yeah. are de minimis, But you're complaining because you cannot freely. You can dehumanize d- people. So- can we yeah. just compare? Can we just compare what our aspirations are? Like your aspiration is to be free to and dehumanize to whole swaths of people. Our aspiration, yes, our yeah. aspiration is to live. Like we just we just want to live. We, we like, <laughs> So no, I, I have I have no patience, no patience, and I put, also put that in a category of weaponized competence because you know, like if you're talking so, unless you truly are mentally challenged, you know that it's not cool to use your platform and to use your power to degrade whole groups of people. You know that's not right. And to be asking for the opportunity to do that and to have the nerve to be upset because sometimes there might be consequences, examine yourself, sir. Go have a look in a mirror. Think about what you've done. Think about what you've done. (laughs) Think about your life and what brought you here why are you trash
0: (laughs) oh man you know and i think about everything you've said this far and it's clearly that there is courage running all through your veins like if there was a blood type first of all i'm no medicine i'm not putting any iv in anyone let's just throw it out there unless there's a mass disaster if oh, for some reason I feel like this is what I have to do to save a life, no needle will be coming from Sable. But there's clearly courage, like blood type courage, is running through your veins. I want to call you Professor Okoby in this moment. Um,
1: <laughs> no, no, ma'am, there are
0: people I who earn professor. No, no, no disrespect <laughs> to anyone not. who has a PhD or is currently going through that process. Um, I've read enough dissertations in my lifetime. No, thank you, please don't ask me to end again. What would <laughs> no, you say to you. a leader who is listening to you? So this has been a replay they're listening or watching, you know, because it is a beautiful sight to see. I just want to say that. And they're like, I hear you. And I've stood up, but then I got shut shut down. And, you know, they've been rejected in in, in their desire to like stand up, encourage, and say, no, I'm going to be relentless. What do you say to them? Like, How? What does it mean to sustain courage and relentlessness throughout, like to make it sustainable versus going, well, I tried three times and, you know, leadership shut me down. So now I'm going to give up for the entirety of the rest of my career, even though I have 15 years left. You know, what what do you say to to someone who needs to build sustainable courage in the spirit of being relentless in, in this work?
1: Yeah, so I think it depends on the person, right? So if you're someone who's at the intersection of of minoritized identities, it's a completely different message because exhaustion is real. Like, yeah, so so that's... If you are someone who sits with a full bucket of privilege related to whiteness and are in your role, I mean, one of the conversations that I'm sure I got in trouble for was I remember sitting with a bunch of white South Africans and saying, gosh, it's so interesting because you cover Africa and you're all white. Like, there's no Black people here. I just, I find that interesting. And then I, and them saying, well, you know, we couldn't find anyone. And I was like, how can you not find anyone in a whole Black-ass country? But I said, the other thing to recognize is you guys aren't here because you're the most qualified. Because if you exist in a space that has systemically put other people down, y'all, you're not the most qualified. You stand on the backs of yeah. multiple people. So I think the extent to which people recognize that they are beneficiaries of a system that has crushed people with minoritized identities, so you owe. And the moment you start to get sad or tired or whatever, look around at your colleagues who are doing this work, plus our jobs, plus having to be more excellent than you are to get half of what you get. And buck up. Like, I mean, if you need to read a story about people of, read a story about people of color who have persevered and who have persisted, who have been killed for persevering. Your life is not on the line. It's not on the line. And so, so I think helping people see where they sit. So you sit in a system where you mm-hmm. have the position that you have because you stand on the backs and shoulders and the necks of people who have been pushed You're out of those. I think if you recognize it's the extent to which, push. violently, the extent to which, no, the extent to which you exist because of violence that has been done in your name, and think about whether or not it really is hard to send another email to say, hey, have we looked at the pool? Like, is that hard? Like, think about the blood. I mean, I, 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 I keep saying I went to Cartagena. Cartagena was founded by Spaniards who, when they got there, they looted, they dug up the graves of indigenous people, looted the graves, took the stuff, sold it and they sold it so that they could enter into the lucrative Um, human trafficking business and then they started they made cartagena a center for this trafficking of africans that made them super rich and it made them so rich that they became a target of pirates so they then decided to create a build a wall and the wall was built by enslaved people thousands of whom died stories like that litter the history of civilization. So all these countries are built on the blood and all these companies are built on the blood and bones and backs of millions of people. You can have that mm-hmm. one-on-one, you will survive it. You will survive. Mm-hmm. And know that not doing it means that you, because doing
0: nothing and being complicit is in the systems like,
1: that you're in. Yeah. Yeah, being complicit in it. Right. Yeah, so just, you know, so that's what I would say. And and the the fear that that is when I'm I, I'm so struck by it. the fear is like, oh, people will think that I'm pushy. And
0: Not did, did you, you die? die?
1: Yeah, like like for the right. No, I'm saying like, did you die? Like, you'll be fine. And so anyway, that, that I, I actually have very little patience for that. And the extent to which especially given what it's gone before, and be really realistic about what it costs you it costs you a, an uncomfortable moment, you know? And finally, the data shows that people who advocate for diversity issues who are not in the groups actually get a bump. So white men who advocate for women, white men who advocate, they actually, they are they are praised for doing the bare minimum. Now for people who are at the intersection of various minoritized identities, that's a cost to us. So it's actually bad for us. And so think about the extent to which you can take the burden off someone mm-hmm. who is standing in the gap um, and who is being penalized when you actually only mm. get flowers. Beautiful
0: flowers, freshly it. cut in season. Okay. Just bring out the sexiest vase good. you own. Those of us who are like, flowers, I'm just <laughs> exactly. trying to get paid fully here. I'm just <laughs> exactly. trying to live. I'm just trying to live. Uh, <laughs> joy. It is indeed revolutionary as a Black woman, a Black Nigerian woman, you needed a break. I read the bio. I said, "Ooh, I mean, I want her to take 2023 if it's possible, too. Um, Shout out in August. How are we feeling for for this last quarter, upcoming quarter? But for those who are listening who are from, you know, a, a community that has been marginalized or communities, you know and find themselves at multiple intersections like what would you say to them in terms of you know what does it look like to practice joy and even encouraging them to find the courage to seek joy even if it might look very different than yours it might not be a year yeah. sabbatical but just you know what does it look like to really go i understand what i'm navigating and that i'm trying to live but i can also have joy too while doing so
1: so many of us work so hard and so many of us give so much of ourselves and everyone who's in positions that most of the people i know who are in positions of power not only do our regular jobs we spend so much time with communities so whether they're community at our organizations mentoring and and supporting they're also larger communities we volunteer like we do them if you look at any you know at, at any executive who's who is, has minoritized identity, we're doing all this other stuff and there it can it can feel like I don't have time. Like, how can I have time for joy? And the thing is, if you go back, there's um, oh, Austin Channing this amazing black I'm woman who here. wrote this book. I'm still here. That book is amazing. And that last chapter I reread so many times because it brings me to tears. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the death of hope and the death of hope sounds like a horrible, sad thing, but in order for you to go on recognizing that whatever it is you're working towards, you're not going to see. And so given that you owe it to yourself, You, joy, um, uh, um, Darren, uh, oh my God, at the Ford Foundation, this this, head of the Ford Foundation, who is an incredible human being. I have followed his career also for decades. And he says, I owe it to my ancestors to have joy. They didn't survive and struggle and suffer in the ways that they did for me not to have joy. And so that's what I would tell us. I would say always work. Yeah. The, the work is constant. The work is constant. But your ability or your to to take time out, and again, it doesn't have to be a grand thing to prioritize joy, to be relentless about joy, and to support each other. The most joy that I have had is in squad, like is in community, is in creating community and in sharing. Like I went to Cartagena with a dear friend of mine named Lovey. I saw um, my daughter there. I saw um, someone who'd been on my team there. So this ability to make connections um, with each other for me has been one of my deepest joys. To reach out, to ask people how they're doing. Yet yeah, to, to spend time really in community. That has been some of the deepest joys. And to know that joy is our birthright and that we deserve it. And that you deserve it wherever you are in your career that you should prioritize even if it's in a small way, what always be thinking, what brings me joy? Why am I here? How could I inject more joy into my life? It is fundamental.
0: I am being so cheeky here. Cheeky is the London word. We know we don't say that over here, but I talked to Brits all day. Um, last, last question, I promise, <laughs> but I've asked it of everyone. So I wanna make sure I ask it of you. If you could have dinner, and this is not a fair question for you. It hasn't had. It hasn't been a fair question for anyone, but I really feel in my heart and soul, it's not a fair question for you. If you could have dinner with anyone who's done equity-related work, you know, whatever that might have looked like, past or present, who would that be?
1: <laughs> so I can make a really long list, but I will say my grandmother. So my grandmother was a powerhouse. So she was part of something called the Abba Women's. Okay revolt and so as you know nigeria was colonized by the british and there's there are tons of struggle so often when you hear the story you don't hear how much struggle and so one of the major struggles was about women and my grandmother was one of them because the british tried to raise you know thieves they tried to raise taxes the market women so the, the, there's a whole community of Igbo women who they went yeah. to the market they ra- they made money and so the british tried to raise taxes on them. And they these said, women got no. together and they're like, absolutely not. They said, absolutely <laughs> not. What you're not going to do is this. And so they all got together, they organized and it's women like mothers against guns. And many of them were killed. It, eventually the levy was lifted, but many people were killed and they didn't it, just imagine being a woman mind. you you have a family, you have kids, you have this business. You're an entrepreneur, you're not a soldier, but they were turned into soldiers. And so I would love, Mm -hmm. she died when I was quite young, like before, like I I think I was eight. So I didn't get to know her as a woman. And I would love, love to talk to her and understand like what gave you the courage to do what you, because I'm doing what I'm doing, but nobody's trying to shoot me. Like She did what she did and her life was on the line. And I want to talk to her and ask her, how did you get that type of courage? How did you raise how did you manage to be a warrior, an entrepreneur, a mother, a wife? How did you do all of that? How did you find that type of courage? So that's why I'd want to talk to my grandmother.
0: I was, my this mother's this is so bad. I was gonna say it's always mom's mom. Um, that we want to have these conversations. That is not true. Listen. Okay, just <laughs> write that from the record. My gosh, <laughs> I could talk to you all day there's so many tangents but you know time might also be a man-made construct but unfortunately here we are having to abide by it thank you for your time thank you for your energy thank you on behalf of those of us who have not yet taken a sabbatical that you are taking one and leading by example because folks say rest all the time black woman and don't actually rest themselves. So just leading, you know, leading by example. I I appreciate that one hundred percent. I'm gonna make sure every. I mean, I have folks listen to listening to the podcast, but make sure those who identify as Black women will definitely. I'm like, no, but you have to. And then I will ask you what were your thoughts um, because you are amazing. You are light for those who want to follow you. Just out of curiosity, on your sabbatical. Are we documenting this or are we just truly living life freely?
1: It's so funny because after having worked in social media for 14 years like I'm um, I'm feeling tired of it. Having said that, I still will post on Instagram pictures. And so I have some 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 posts from when I was in Cartagena because I, it was I just found it really um impactful. Um yeah. So so yeah, I my, my name is Abella Okobi. So, e b e l e o k o b i um, at Instagram. Thank you so much for having me. This was absolute joy.
0: Thank you for joining me. This this has been amazing.